0: Good afternoon, everybody. Hope you're doing well. It's Steph. It is the 23rd of August 2006, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Yes, I know we all miss the background sounds of traffic and honking and rainstorms from hell, but I am off this week. I am awaiting the start of my new job, so we are going to have to survive with just the sounds of me rather than all of the ambient and environmental sounds the uh, the world over so i'd like to chat today about an email conversation that i've been having with some other libertarians wherein i must say that i find the level of hostility towards the general public to be rather startling rather astounding rather surprising and uh, I would say, misanthropic, I guess you could say, would be the right way of approaching it. And I just, I mean, they they could be totally right, and perhaps the human uh, species is a hateful set of organisms, but I'd just like to throw out some possible alternatives to ways of looking at people for us libertarians, or rationalists, or anarcho-capitalists, or whatever you want to call us, those of us who are philosophers, ways in which we can possibly, you know, just maybe, find a little bit more peace and love in our hearts for our fine fellow citizens in in uh, in this uh, in this world, in this, I guess, pseudo-democracy that we have. Now, I'm not going to aim through this conversation to end up with you in some sort of situation where you have to love everything about everyone. I'm not really talking about that. What I'm more talking about is this question... What is our relationship to those who know less than we do? And I would caution you in this, just sort of based on on my experience of being a guy who knew very little to a guy who thinks maybe he knows uh, just a little bit, that there is always going to be a phase in life where you know less than you're going to know tomorrow. And the tomorrow you'll know less than you're going to know the day after. So if you end up with a sort of universal hostility towards people who know less than you, then you must hate yourself or you must apply those same rules to yourself than, uh, the, that you will uh, relative to your future knowledge. Instead sort of an important thing to understand. And this occurs at a psychological level, so... I'm not arguing that you should love humanity. Actually, I'm not going to argue you should love humanity at all, but I'm not even going to argue that you shouldn't hate humanity because uh, of some pie-in-the-sky goal or ideal, but really because you want to try and create consistent principles by which you don't end up judging yourself according to a different standard than you judge others. Now, I think the first thing that I would say in this realm that may be helpful to you is that none of us have invented anything uh, solely or almost nothing uh, on our own. Almost none of us have created anything that is solely our own. Even if you think that, say, you or I or somebody else has had some original ideas, then you still have to accept, of course, that we are standing on an edifice of existing knowledge, and even if you don't want to grant that, at least existing language that means that we're using words that we didn't invent in order to convey ideas, even if they may be new. Uh, for instance, uh, the argument for morality that I put forward may be sort of may be sort of new-ish, but, of course, the idea of consistency and logic and integrity and honesty and virtue and blah, 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 these are not ideas that I invented myself, of course, but ideas that I inherited, like just all of us. You add you know, each little sedimentary layer to human knowledge as best you can, without imagining, I would say, that something that you create is entirely your own and entirely uh, uninfused with the ideas of others. Now, why is that important? Well, one of the major questions and one of the most popular threads Free Domain Radio, on the Free Domain Radio board is the question, um, it's called Fatal Attraction, what was your conversion experience? And like that talking head song goes, well, how did I get here? And I mentioned this on Sunday and I think in a podcast last week that uh, my journey towards this kind of uh, truth uh, that I talk about now was coincidental, right? I mean, I didn't just sort of look through all of the possible ideas in the world and end up then saying, oh, you know, I'm going to really go with these ones because these ones are the most logical and so on. Well, that wasn't what happened at all. Of course, what did happen was that I ended up being exposed to the Fountainhead through a friend of mine who listened to Rush, and then I started reading from there. Now, the interesting thing for me was that the process of falling in love with liberty, I guess you could say, was at first an emotional one for me. And this is not to denigrate the questions of free will or anything like that. I'm simply talking about my own experience and that which gives me some sort of, uh, I guess, sympathy towards others, even those who've been exposed to libertarian ideas and have then rejected them. I still think that it's important to sort of understand some sort of facts about ourselves before we judge others now, one of the things that I think is important to understand for for me, or at least if if my story is of any use to you, I hope it is is that when I first read The Fountainhead, I sort of picked the book up and I started reading, and immediately I this electrical pulses sort of went through my hands, and I really did sort of recognize that I was very much dealing with something, I had something in my hands that was pretty much unprecedented. I'd never seen anything or heard anything or or knew of anything like it before. And I really got that at an emotional level. And I think I got sort of the implications of everything that Ayn Rand was talking about. And of course, as a uh, a gentleman who... As a youth, did not exactly have the most positive and beneficent interactions with authority figures. It sort of made sense to me to be skeptical about it, and of course, I have a natural, I guess you could say, bent towards philosophy, and uh, which remained, which remained largely undiscovered in myself until I started to get involved with a philosophy that actually seemed to make a shred or two of sense. I mean, I'd been exposed to philosophy beforehand. I just had never really found that it made much sense to me. Whereas, of course, when you start reading Rand, there is this glorious kind of clarity and and rigor and passion and occasional lapses, I would say, in logic, but I'm sure that's far more true of me uh, than it is of her, so I'm not going to start throwing stones from this uh, glass house to mix my metaphors. So, from that standpoint, I sort of recognize in myself... That my encounter, that my encounter with libertarianism or objectivism, I guess in this case, was coincidental. I just happened to have a friend who happened to like Rush, who happened to hand me this book, and 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 even after that coincidence, it wasn't as if I understood at some fundamental, deep level everything that was going to come in store for me with, with regards to this philosophy. But rather, what happened was, I kind of fell in love with it. Now, uh, did I fall in love with it because I have some sort of innate rational streak, or because I have a talent for reason or ideas or anything like that? Well, that's certainly possible. That certainly could be the case, of course. And I can't really tell you exactly why. I can sort of tell you in hindsight, because, you know, it opened up a life of meaning and purpose for me out of this sort of primordial soup of my state education, I actually began to understand a few things that were really of value to me and had not i had no, had no inkling of them before it 's not like you study a lot of Aristotle and Locke in high school and and of course, the history uh, that i'd taken in university oh sorry in high school was all complete nonsense right so the fact that I fell in love with libertarian ideals or ideas or I guess you could say objectivists at this time was not. I would not say it was a moral choice on my part. it's sort of to me at least it smacks of something like you know there are certain kind of people who end up being musicians right and they they love being musicians because they picked up an instrument and started playing it and loved it right away, and so on and so on and so on and I liked also, I was a violinist for 10 years, played some piano, played a little bit of guitar, so I love music too. I love to sing and I love uh, songs and so on. But there are other people who pick up an instrument and just find it sort of irritating or annoying to work on, and so don't get very far in it. So the love that you have for something when you first encounter it has a lot to do with the amount of energy that you put into it going forward. Of course, the fact is that I really enjoy these podcasts, and it's one of the main reasons why I do them. I think they do some good in their own small way, but more importantly, I really enjoy doing them, and I'm not sure that I would force myself to do them, even if they did good in the world, if I didn't take pleasure in them to begin with, if that sort of makes any sense. So, from that standpoint, not only was it fairly coincidental that I ran into objectivist or rationalist philosophy, but... It was also uh, that my emotional reaction to it, which was not the result of me reasoning, sort of rationally uh, going into the virtue of X, Y, and Z, but it was really the case that I just happened to love it for a variety of reasons that make sense in hindsight, but which I didn't understand really at the time. I mean, if you'd have said to me, why do you love this, I probably would have given you 15 wrong answers, whereas now I'll probably only give you 14, and that's the kind of progress that I think you can make in uh, In the world so so whether you got exposed to libertarian ideas probably was somewhat coincidental, um, whether or not you i mean I guess if you 're listening to this it 's probably safe to say that you did find a kind of electric awakening within your brain when all of this stuff started to come into being uh, probably as it as it was for me it 's probably the same same thing for you that you started getting into this stuff and It just made your brain giggle, you know, (laughs) with a kind of rational joy that's really hard to explain to other people. And I'm not saying that it's value neutral to have this kind of reaction. It's a little bit more ethical, I would say, to have a reaction to libertarian thought than it is to like to play the piano, of which, of course, every crazy evil person in the universe can uh, have the option to play the piano, maybe not crazy, but uh, evil whereas to uh, love libertarianism to love liberty to love logic and philosophy takes a little bit more virtue i would think but in its initial instance in its initial instance it's not a question of virtue i did not fall in love with libertarianism because it was a moral choice and i had to really work it back and forth within myself i fell in love with libertarianism because that was sort of my nature to begin with. And this doesn't mean that there's no value in it, and it doesn't mean that it's ethically neutral, and it doesn't mean that there's no free will and no virtue. I'm just telling you sort of what happened for me, and maybe there was something similar for you. Now, we've also had the discussion on the board, and I'm not going to say that it's conclusive. It probably won't be concluded within my lifetime, and maybe never. And the discussion on the board related to this question was something along the lines of, well, when it comes to experiences that may have prompted you, we sort of tried to figure some of this out. Like, what sort of life experiences, and this is in one of the very early talk shows, what sort of life experiences prepare one for being attracted to libertarianism? That's sort of a, I think, a very important question. Because there are some commonalities. It can't just be completely random. In psychology, or human psychology is not a completely random thing. So there must be some similarities that occur which allow people to have uh, some sort of receptivity or capacity for receiving um, moral or philosophical ideas that are logical and coherent and so on. And, of course, there must be other situations in life which would lead one to have a less emotionally receptive kind of reaction to libertarianism. And I'm not sure I could say exactly what they are. I would imagine that some of them might involve complicity in parental power or uh, some sort of elder sibling dominance of younger siblings and so on. But there must be some kind of... Because I can't say that my emotional reaction to libertarianism was entirely based on a rational analysis of the information. The reason that I pursued and became more knowledgeable about libertarianism was because I loved the ideas. Because I loved the ideas, I was more drawn towards exploring and understanding them further. But in that understanding of, uh, no, uh, sorry, in that love of it, it took me quite a while to understand that my reaction was not exactly a universal phenomenon, right? So when I would pick up the Fountainhead, and would read through it, read through Capitalism, the Unknown, unknown Ideal, the Romantic Manifesto, blah, blah, blah. When I read through these things, I just felt a kind of luminous clarity and loved the ideas behind them and really felt that my mind was given some real scope to work with, some real, um, some real organization in terms of my thinking. Thinking became thinking through my understanding of rational philosophy. It didn't exist... In my mind, beforehand, beforehand, I was, as Ayn Rand described certain people, you know, a jumble of preconceptions and half-conceptions and whatever detritus had managed to float to the top of my brain based on a wide variety of experiences and so on. But I could not think in any fundamental way, of course. I grew up in an irrational family and then went through many, many different kinds of public and private school, none of which, of course, prepared me to, to think at all or taught me how to think at all. And so thinking really was something that I discovered through the process of reading philosophy. And I, but again, I would not say that I had a strong, rational, logical understanding of where I was going or what was in store for me or why I would choose to have this emotional reaction when I get sort of one chapter into the fountainhead the first time I'm reading it and go, yeah, this is for me, (laughs) right? This is for me. So my... Virtue, I think, in the realm of this has grown in, in time, but I really can't claim that it was virtuous to begin with. It was just that I loved it and wanted more of it and continued to pursue it. Now, I think that the virtue came in for me, the virtue began to come in much later on in the process of understanding philosophy. And the virtue for me uh, came along uh, a number of different areas. The main area was once I really began to think for myself, then I had the challenge of uh, I guess you could say <laughs> disagreements, right Not that disagreements are a sort of fundamental challenge in my life, but when you depart from the texts right and this is as of true this is as true for objectivists as it is for religious people. Uh, no insult of course to objectivists i 'm just sort of talking about. When you begin to depart from the texts, then you can—you really do start, start to set yourself up some challenging interpersonal conflicts. And this is one of the reasons why people stick to the texts, right? And what they do is say, well, Ayn Rand said X, right? So a guy I knew about 10 years ago has uh, sort of surfaced, not, not surfaced in his own life, of course, he's always been there, but surfaced for me. Um, because 10 years ago, I guess, or more, maybe 11 or 12, I was a minarchist. Actually, it was more recent than that, but let's just stick with the 10 years ago. And he seems to be of the opinion, he's a very staunch objectivist, seems to be of the opinion that because I have changed my mind, or I guess I would say grown in my thinking, away from minarchism towards anarcho-capitalism, simply because of the consistency of the moral principles involved, he seems to feel that I have somehow betrayed my values because I'm trying to live them more consistently and a little bit less out of somebody else's thoughts and a little bit more out of my own thoughts vis-a-vis reality. And I can understand why he would feel that, and I can understand that he's not having a good deal of luck with interpersonal conflict because he can't question these values uh, that I'm holding on a rational basis. He's just like, well, you know, he's betrayed his former belief in, in objectivism and now has become an anarchist and blah, 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 and it's a bad thing, right? Of course, the fact that I believed something different 10 or 12 years ago doesn't mean too too much to me. Um, you know, if you go back further, I believed in Santa Claus, but I don't believe that I'm betraying Santa Clausism by no longer holding to the belief that the uh, the old bearded chap actually exists and flies around. And this is, of course, not to call <laughs> anything like objectivism, uh, any kind of, of mysticism. It's not. I mean, it's, it's a philosophical approach that has enormous, has had enormous value for me. But uh, which I find limited in certain areas, limited in its uh, understanding of the family, limited in its understanding and exposition on human psychology, and a little bit kind of uh, aggressive towards the uninitiated, which I've always felt to be kind of like a problem. It's kind of like a problem. I can't really, to be perfectly honest, as I always try to be, I can't claim that I'm some sort of innately virtuous person, I just happen to have a nature that responded very positively towards libertarian ideals. And I think that the the virtue that I can claim came in sort of A, thinking for myself, right? You learn the principles in order to be able to think for yourself, right? Like you you learn... You, you do scales and you learn musical theory in order to be able to compose your own works, not just to keep, I guess, unless you're sort of a holiday and kind of piano player, not to keep playing and other people's stuff and do cover songs and so on, but to actually sort of start working out your own compositions. I think that's sort of the height of musical understanding. And that, to me, has been very much the case. So I'll certainly claim some virtue in sticking with it long enough and then starting to put my own ideas out there. That, I think, was is a tough thing to do and I think took some courage and has taken some... Uh, Maturity, because, of course, there's nothing that the world loves to uh, attack more than somebody with new ideas that uh, he's quite certain about and has, you know, I I think sometimes the attack is even stronger when you have logical reasons, right? So when you have logical reasons for your ideas and evidence, then people feel the need to attack them if they contradict their own even more than if you just said, this is my opinion, because then they could just dismiss you as, well, this is just this guy's opinion. What does it have to do with me or the truth or anything like that? So I think that there's been a fair amount, I could sort of claim some uh, courage and uh, some uh, virtue in sort of coming up with my own ideas and also in learning how to negotiate in a more positive and pleasant way with those who disagree uh, with me. That has also required some uh, maturing and some... Uh, sensitivity and some understanding and some empathy, even in difficult situations, that has required that. And of course, I'm not saying that I'm <laughs> solely privy to these. Lots of people have these virtues, I think, not quite as many as, as, as should, especially in the libertarian movement. So I can sort of claim some virtue there, conflict resolution, coming up with my own ideas, finding good ways to put them forward. And, you know, sometimes virtue is doing things that you don't want to do. And so, you know, I don't feel like doing another podcast, or I don't feel like uploading because it's a drag, or doing the XML updates and so on. I'll still sort of do them because I sort of want to try and do the right thing with the time and energy and and abilities that I have. So I think there's some virtue in that, but I sure as heck can't say that I I am virtuous or virtuous operating in my conversion to libertarianism. My conversion to libertarianism occurred like in the span of three and a half heartbeats based on an exquisite kind of joy flooding my system, and that That joy is not universal is one of the tougher lessons of becoming a philosopher, that your love of wisdom and the love of knowledge is not something that's shared by too many other people. In fact, it would seem, and I'm sure we've all had this experience to some degree, it would seem that your love of knowledge or your love of wisdom actually uh, causes a lot of people to be really upset with you in the way that, like if you just sort of parroted, I don't know, like Rush Limbaugh whoever, if you just sort of parented these kinds of guys, then I don't think that people would have as much of a problem with you. Like, they'd get mad at you maybe from time to time. But they wouldn't fundamentally really have the kind of problems that an original thinker gets, right? So they may say, oh, Rush Limbaugh's an idiot, you're just a ditto head or whatever, right? But when you start really coming up with original ideas and asking people to think for themselves... What you do, of course, is you begin to expose an enormous deficit in their capacities that they don't believe that they have. Right? Everybody thinks that they've, they've got the truth and they're acting on the right answers and with the right information and they know what they're doing. And, of course, the whole point of the Socratic method is to get people to understand that there are significant deficits in their knowledge that are pretty important and that they don't know necessarily what they say or what they claim to know. And that creates a lot of hostility for reasons that I've gone into before. I'll just sort of touch on briefly here. But basically, it's because they were lied to by their parents and their teachers and their professors and uh, and their friends and so on. And by lied to, I don't mean stuff like somebody said, I don't know, like their high school history teacher said something like, socialism is about helping the poor or you know, Marxism is great in theory, it just doesn't work in practice, or, or, you know, human nature isn't good enough, and the free market is not a bad thing for pr- producing goods, but it's fundamentally amoral, needs the government. to It's not, these sorts of things aren't the lies that I'm talking about, uh, because errors are always possible. The, the, the problem, the sort of real lies that I see going on in the world are the lies uh, that is the form of knowledge, not the content, right? So, the problem is not somebody saying socialism is about helping the poor. The problem is that they're absolutely certain about it, and they don't give reasons. Right? That's, that's. A, you should believe this because it's true, people say. And of course, if you ask people, should people believe stuff that's just told to them, or should they actually try and figure it out for themselves, then everyone will say, yes, people should try and figure it out for themselves. There should be logic. There should be evidence. But the lie, sort of the fundamental lie that goes on for people that is the most emotionally troubling is that not that people said to things, things that weren't true, but that people did not hold to their own standards of truth and falsehood and when confronted on it get very hostile. And so for really it's it's the form of knowledge that that people say, well, socialism is about helping the poor rather than saying the theory is that socialism is about helping the poor. What do you think? What do you think the evidence might be and and getting people to really think on their own? Well, that's not really what people are so much into who are in the teaching profession, and I include in this parents, of course, the sort of first and primary teachers and so it's the form that this knowledge takes, and the lack of connection with the people's own values around what it means to ask questions and how they can be logically answered. That's sort of the fundamental problem that that people have. And if they've swallowed all of that stuff and then you start to confront them, they say that they know something and you start to ask them and then find out that they don't know something, they'll get incredibly hostile because you're kind of awakening a part of them. I would call it the true self part for those who are up on this uh, funky lingo that we use at Free Domain Radio. I would say that the true self knows that they were lied to, that everyone said to them, not only stuff that was false but said it with a certainty that was entirely unjustified even based on their own desire or criteria for what it means to say something that's true (laughs) let me see if I can put that in a more roundabout and convoluted manner no, no, don't think I can but if I say to you socialism is about helping the poor and also you should think for yourself you should reason things out you shouldn't just parrot other people's opinions which is what most teachers will tell you then, of course, the hypocrisy is that I'm just parroting other people's opinions and not trying to come up with the truth myself. But I'm communicating it as if it's true. I'm directly contradicting my own values. And this is why people get, in my view, why people sort of get so hostile when you begin to ask them questions. Now, I myself, I think one of the things that led me to be a little bit more receptive towards the kind of philosophy that I've spent my life pursuing was that I really had no values. Like I really had no value. I had no. I had no real commitment to socialism. I had no real commitment to. I wasn't left wing. I wasn't right wing. I had a vaguely positive idea about socialism, but nothing particularly uh, informed. And so I didn't really have anything to contradict. I hadn't. I'd never really colluded with people who were in power. I had no power within my own family. I had no particular theories or no particular allegiances, towards any kind of existing philosophy or ideology. And so I guess I was sort of that tabula rasa, right? That sort of blank slate wherein new ideas can be formed without a huge amount of resistance. So sort of all this having been said, I would like to sort of mention some ideas that might be useful in terms of you helping helping sort of understand where other people are coming from and so on. Uh, People do have a desperate desire to be consistent, right? That they nobody wants to think that their ideas are falsely consistent or that they're not uh, that they're saying something as if it's true when it's not true i mean that that much we can say is the saving grace of the species because that's the only possibility that philosophy has philosophy doesn't offer you short-term pleasure right up front it's not a heroin hit of intellectual joy it's quite a, uh, a it can be a very difficult and unpleasant ride to begin with of course and so it's only because of people's desire for consistency that philosophy has any kind of chance to reform the way that people think into something more logical and coherent and productive and positive so people do desperately want to be consistent and they believe that they are although of course deep down they know that they're not which is where the hostility comes from but those of us who became philosophers uh, rationalists, uh, libertarians, objectivists whatever you want to call it those of us who made this transition did so because we took real pleasure in it to begin with. The fact that we took real pleasure in it to begin with is not something that we can be proud of. I, th- I think that's sort of important to understand. I think that you want to make sure in life that you don't take accidental features as core virtues. I think that's a very quick way of ending up with a very false and unstable and uh, you know often quite hostile approach to uh, to being alive and i think that libertarianism has a little bit of that i'm not saying that it's even as strong uh, nearly as strong as other kinds of philosophies but i think that libertarian does have some of that where the fact that we were kind of innately or accidentally or emotionally prior to understanding drawn to these ideas that we became libertarianism that we became libertarians because we loved freedom we don't love freedom because we became libertarians right so I, I think, and we're not responsible for our initial emotional reactions. We didn't choose those to the libertarian material that came across their desks. Now, there may have been times as we go forward in libertarianism where we come across ideas that are very contrary to our own particular opinions. And I've received a large number of emails from those who've listened to my podcasts or read my articles or participated in the board discussions who say, you know, (laughs) you're really (laughs) pushing me way past my comfort zone when it comes to understanding consistent applications of logic and ethics and philosophical premises and so on. You know, to which I can only say, well, therein lies the virtue, right? The virtue is when you go solo and have to understand things that are uncomfortable to you, right? So this is one of the reasons why I talk about the family, because people are a lot more comfortable talking about the state and all of the abuses that go on with the state than they are about their own families and so on. So from that standpoint, I think that it's very important that we don't take our accidental preferences, the emotional preferences which we just sort of had within us for reasons that I'm not even going to try to understand or explain just now, that we were drawn towards these ideas emotionally, and that's why we became very into freedom, very pro-freedom. So we can't claim virtue for being libertarians. Uh, There are times where virtue is required, you have to push on despite discomfort, but fundamentally, and there may be people out there who hated libertarianism for the moment they started, and that the virtue is blah, 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 but I think that claiming virtue for being a natural-born libertarian, I guess you could say, it's sort of like those people who have these unbelievable metabolisms that can burn off 90,000 calories a week, saying to you, oh, well, yeah, you know, I just, uh, I try to stay fit and I try to stay thin, whereas somebody who has a, a slower metabolism is going to have to work a lot harder to remain thin. Uh, so this sort of accidental me- metabolic thing is all like taking pride in, in I don't know, your hair, or t- taking pride in your height, or, uh, you know, your good looks, or you know maybe your athletic ability these are all ath- accidental things that occurred if you had lots of athletic ability but hated athletics sort of in in your gut, then you would not be a very good athlete you have or if you loved athletics but had no particular coordination, then you would not be um a good athlete, even despite your desire. So you have to have both the ability and the desire. And most libertarians, of course, have the ability, and that's great, and they have the desire to pursue libertarianism, and that's kind of innate, and that's great too. But I would be really, really cautious about thinking that you're some sort of superior life form because you're into libertarianism. I think that uh, that is a, a, a real problem, and I think it's quite a false approach to understanding why you are the way that you are. Now, what does this mean when it comes to looking at the rest of society? Well, the rest of society either lack the ability or the desire, right? I mean, and, and yes, there are some people who have been corrupted and who fight against the truth and who've become bad people and who understand libertarianism and freedom and logic and philosophy and ethics and, and integrity and honor and decency and truth-telling and all this kind of stuff. I, there are people who've turned against that. They've become sort of rancid, and I'm not going to dismiss those people as existing, but to my mind, we really can't theorize about how many of those people there are in the world, because we just don't know. We just don't know. Of course, as we know, the vast majority of people, they get herded into their, you know, they get their parents who themselves were educated in the state indoctrination camps we call public school, and then they themselves were herded into public schools, and we were sort of forced to sit there and listen to all of the drivel about how capitalism calls to all the evils in the world and the government saves us and all this kind of stuff. And, and then if they didn't, I mean, they, they got negative feedback. If they questioned the teacher, uh, incredibly hostile and vicious negative feedback. And, I mean, we get hostile feedback from people as libertarians in just general conversations. Well, what's it like when you, of course, try to question those who have authority over you and so on? It's much, much, much worse. So they got negative feedback for asking questions. They got positive feedback for parroting back the same kind of bullshit that they were being told by their teachers. So, I mean, this is years upon years. And, you know, they this, they grow up and they get older. They look upon the intellectual landscape and they see that... Yes, there's some debate between the Keynesians and the Chicago School between whether or more whether well, Should there be a negative income tax? Or, you know, what rate should taxation be? or But nobody's out there. And, and people get Nobel Prizes for pushing status policies. And everybody who's a public figure, you turn on CNN and all these people with degrees are all talking about how the government needs to do this and the government needs to do that. So, you know, it's... It's it's a pretty high wall to get over if you are a non-libertarian and you are trying to understand. I mean, you have to be kind of driven to get this stuff. You have to be kind of emotionally copacetic and, and, and with it, I guess you could say. You aren't going to get it from just staring around in society. In fact, staring around in society is going to give you the impression that libertarians are a deranged kind of cult, right? I mean, that sort of would make sense, right? None of the politicians are libertarians. I mean, I guess there's Ron Paul, but he's very much the exception. And few few people have really heard of him or really understand his policies and so on. And, of course, he's still in the government. So, of course, we're, that's just libertarianism. When you start to talk about anarcho-capitalism, you really are in a whole different planet, and you know there are lots of crazy ideas out there in the world, and I don't, certainly don't spend my time investigating them all because you know time is limited, right? I don't. So, for the average person to look at libertarian ideas, they're going to look really weird, really cookie. And of course, our level of passion for them is not actually adding in general. I'm saying we shouldn't have it because we do, and we shouldn't fight it. But the level of passion that we have helps them to understand that it's our passion that drives us. To further understand these ideas now, if they don't share that passion, why would they dive in right? I mean, if you, you can meet people who are really interested in collecting matchbooks. I've met uh, a guy who's really interested in collecting shot bottles. Yeah, he showed me his basement. he's got like lined up shot bottles and people who collect beer cans and they're really- enth- they're really enthusiastic. They're all over eBay looking this stuff up and trying to get this stuff and and so on. And they're very passionate, but it doesn't exactly translate to you wanting to become a collector of this kind of esoteric stuff. And this is sort of how libertarianism looks to other people. And of course, the only way to avoid, to get around that, is to make the ideas relevant to these people, in my humble opinion. So you talk to them about their ethical decisions and their level of certainty and get them to understand that. There are objective standards for truth and falsehood, and that the moral propositions that they believe in aren't universally consistent, and blah, 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 blah. Now, of course, most people will say, like, yeah, okay, well, so what? You know, you're one guy who's ever talked to me about this. Every other single educated human being in the universe, uh, both in the media and just in my life, that I've ever talked to says exactly the opposite. And yeah, you could be right, but you're one guy, and there's a social consensus of truth that's the complete opposite, that everyone is uh, adhering to, and of course, last but not least, you you have the the uh, concern that people have, that you're like, you know, some people call him the guy in the diner, right? It's the guy in the diner. So you sit down in a diner, and some guy sits down next to you, and he's got the answers to all the world's problems, right? And he's very passionate, and he's arguing with you, and he's doing this, and he's doing that. And, you know, at some point, you're like, well, you know, I guess some of this stuff makes sense. It's a little bit radical. But you are a guy in a diner, right? I mean, that's fairly important, I think, to understand where we're coming from with how we look to people. If you were so smart, why aren't you on CNN? If you're so smart, why aren't you a professor? If you're so smart, why aren't you running for office? If you're so smart, blah, 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 right? And it's not exactly a totally unjust question, right? Because lots of crazy ideas in the world, as I said, you spend your whole time investigating them all. So... I just sort of like to, to put out there that those who don't have our sort of innate emotional drive and desire and love of liberty are eh, going to face some pretty significant problems trying to understand all of this stuff and trying to make sense of it. And it seems it's very unlikely that they're going to invest the time. Now, one of the reasons that I'm talking about this is, and I'm not going to sort of talk about who, but I'm having a debate with a libertarian who's not unknown within the movement, and he was sort of coming up with stuff like, People who vote for the theft of my property ought to be shot. And we'll sort of talk about this another time in general, but I think that is not going to help us very much try to get uh, ideas out that people are sort of unfamiliar with, right? Because whenever people come across an idea that uh, they're unfamiliar with, one of the ways that they figure out whether it's worth investing time to to, to sort of sort it out or to, to, to learn more about it is is there anything sort of weird and scary in it, right? <laughs> of course, you know, if you're one of these people who's, you know, they love the comet, they cut their own nuts off to go and join it, that would be kind of a marker for me, you know, particularly if they say, yes, we are, we believe X, Y, and Z, we believe the comet's coming, and it's got s- space aliens on it. I'm like, okay, well, that's sort of odd, right? But, you know, hey, tell me more, because if it's true, <laughs> it'd be really cool. And they say, yes, and the way we're going to get there is we're going to cut our own nuts off, right? Now, for me, that's sort of like... um i would say that i would sort of back off at that point and when people start to say that the way that they want to deal with the problem of voting is that they support uh, gunning down um anybody who's ever cast a ballot uh, in their life right i mean of course this is a bit of a hyperbole and so on but you know that's that's something where people might say you know, I gotta tell you, I'm not really sure that this exploring this is for me, because if this is where you end up, or like if you're saying, if you, you know, follow all this stuff, X, Y, and Z will happen. If where you end up is wanting to shoot um, people who voted, then I'm not really sure that I'm going to follow that route. Now, of course, it's a complicated topic. I'm not sort of going to try and solve it right now, but this kind of stuff, uh, I think becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because you say people are they don't want to learn about liberty join me on the land of having everyone of wanting to have everyone shot and then being upset because people don't uh, do that I think might be just a tad a tad irrational because and the last thing I'll sort of say here is that it's important to understand the knowledge that we hold has been lost to society as a whole the knowledge that we hold is totally gone from the general consciousness. And I don't just mean like some people are like, yeah, the free market is good, and some people are like, yeah, the government should be smaller. I'm talking about the rigor, the philosophy, the logic, the ethics, and all the stuff that we're holding on to for dear life through these sorts of dark ages. I mean, this is is knowledge that's gone from society. For me, getting mad at people for not being libertarian right now is kind of like getting mad at people in the dark ages for not knowing anything about Aristotle. Well after the fall of the burning of Constantinople of the the fall of Rome and and the the growth of the dark ages and so on well Aristotle was lost he went uh, he went and stayed with the muslims for i don't know 5 700 years and it's like getting mad at people in the dark ages for not having any knowledge of roman law well roman law was lost the knowledge was lost And right now, at least for the last 120, 140 years, the knowledge has been lost. Throughout most of human history, throughout 99.9999% of human history, this knowledge is lost to people. And the fact that it's available on the Internet doesn't mean anything, because people don't go and search out every single conceivable theory on the Internet to validate it, even if you had eternal life. That's not how you choose to spend a good chunk of it. So the knowledge is not there. The knowledge is absent. If we say some dark age is about to occur, that is going to eradicate i don't know some nuclear war or something that's going to occur it's going to eradicate computers from the world let's just say well five generations from now there's going to be nobody who understands anything about computers and saying to these people that they're ignorant morons who are totally corrupt and maybe should be shot because they don't know anything about computers well the knowledge has been lost they don't even The people in the Dark Ages didn't speak Latin anymore. There were a couple of monks who hung on to the books and who understood them and had these scholastic debates. But to the general population, the knowledge was lost. They even saw the mass in Latin. So expecting them to understand the finer points of Christian theology would be crazy. Now, we are sort of the monks of freedom in the modern world. This knowledge is like a little flame, a little flame that we're trying to keep alive in an increasing wind of state power. And, yeah, we've got to hold tight to it because if we lose it, it's, you know, gone for who knows how long. And so for me, at least when I look upon the general population, I just view them as people who've not been exposed to this kind of knowledge and it's not like the moment you get exposed to this kind of knowledge you suddenly fall in love with it that was the case for us but it's very important not to mistake the world for yourself other people are very very different some people wake up singing have a beautiful singing voice a perfect tone and can sit down and write a hit song in twenty minutes I mean, I think that was the average production of the Beatles in their heyday—a hit song every 20 minutes, right? <laughs> but that doesn't make them better people. That's not virtue. It's not like they're because because Paul McCartney can write a thousand times better song than I. Doesn't make Paul McCartney a thousand times better than I am. Guy's got a great singing voice. Uh, he's a good musician and he's a fantastic songwriter and a great performer. That's just innate to his nature. It's innate to his physiology. It's part of who he is. Doesn't make him a better person. And for him. To say anybody who can't write a pop hit, a pop song that's a hit, is a corrupt and evil moron, I just think is kind of vain and kind of narcissistic. It's kind of like looking at the world and saying, well, this happened for me. I came across these ideas and I fell in love with them and that should be the case for everyone. Well, clearly it's not the case for everyone and we know that it's not the case for everyone just by looking at the world. And we're supposed to be empirical, right? We're supposed to work with what is. We're supposed to understand the existence and nature of reality first and then build our theories from there. Well, the theory that uh, the facts that we need to work from is that very few people encounter these ideas and fall in love with them. I'm glad that, that we have because it keeps the ideas alive until they can begin to sort of plant and grow and so on. But the vast majority of people hear these ideas and get freaked out or hostile or feel indifferent or feel bored or feel frustrated or feel irritated or feel negative, whatever. That's just a fact that we have to work with. That wasn't the case for us. But it's not our virtue that we fell in love with these ideas. That's just part of our nature. And it's not an evil for other people not to fall in love with the ideas the same way that we do. It's just not their nature. That doesn't mean we can't talk to them. But I think we need to talk to them like we're monks introducing Aristotle to a dark age population. You don't call them stupid for never having read a book when they've never been taught how to read. And you can't call people stupid for being illogical when they've never been taught how to reason. What you want to do is try and teach them how to reason, not get angry and hostile towards them for not knowing how to reason. That's like, it's like being Mozart, as I mentioned before. Like Mozart would be like the worst piano teacher in the world because everything's so easy for Mozart. I mean, he just sat down and played scales at the age of two and composed symphonies at the age of five and played in front of the king at the age of eight or whatever. Everything was so easy for Mozart, so he sits there and he'd just get so frustrated if you had any trouble with anything, because he'd be like, it's so easy, just do it. But you can't because you're not Mozart. That's a specific talent he has, and it would be very unwise of him to mistake his, mistake his specific talent for a universal value that other people could have if they just willed it. It's not the case at all. So, I just sort of wanted to talk about that sort of briefly. I think that it's a scary thing to do emotionally for reasons that we can talk about another time. But I do think that it's absolutely essential, it's absolutely essential that we try and find a way to be more friendly to the people who don't happen to share our talents and interests. We do want to help them, but... We can't do that if we think that our particular habits of character or our particular personalities are the only uh, virtues, and that everyone else has to do exactly, uh, has to feel how we felt when we encountered rational philosophy for the first time, or they're stupid, because they're not. They just don't have the ability, or they don't have the desire. That's a very different thing from being evil. And so I hope that that's helpful. I hope that this gives you some uh, way of approaching people. And, of course, the the thing is that they don't know that they don't know, and that's a challenge, of course, and that can be frustrating. But the solution is not to call people stupid, in my view, or necessarily to say that they should get shot. All right, thanks so much for listening. I had a lovely donation this morning. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I can't tell you how much it shines up my day when I get donations like that. And uh, I uh, am using the money for a good purpose, and uh, you can check out some of the new videos at YouTube, Y-O-U. T-U-B-E dot com forward slash free domain radio. Thanks so much. I'll talk to you soon.